This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Hey, guess what? It's our 500th episode. You know what that means? Lightning round? Lightning round. Lightning round! Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. Doritos and kombucha strew the grounds. Alien big cats listening to things ripped from the headlines. It's total chaos here. Every hut opened up. The cats are wearing party hats, Ken. Many of them are wearing party hats. The king of the fire salamanders is there mixing up his famous punch. It must be a special episode, and indeed it is. It's one of those episodes that's so special, Robin, that it has two zeros in its number. Yes, not just a five and a zero, but two zeros. And there is a five in it because it's episode... 500. Can you believe it? Our specialist anniversary yet, and no doubt our specialist for perhaps uh, some time to come. Yeah, but one imagines that it is going to be very difficult to have an episode that special in the next 10 years, I guess. Ten That's years. how it works, right? So, yes. Now, astute listeners who've been, you know, getting their abacuses or abacai down from the shelf may have noted that it's not quite been 10 years since we started because the the way that the episodes work, they sort of, you know, 52 weeks in a year, 50 episodes is, is a little less than a year, and then there's holidays, and who knows what's going on. But at any rate... This the is actual- the kind of thing that made Julius Caesar very mad, and he would exactly. have to come out and fix it. Yeah. It's not quite our 10th anniversary, but when that happens at the beginning of August, we'll do yet another celebratory episode of a as yet undetermined format to mark that as well. We'll just do a clip show. I think Connie Francis will come out. Maybe um, uh, we'll have uh, Chet Atkins will play uh, fiddle. It'll be great. It'll be superb. (laughs) 
clip shows. Jeez. Yeah. So, um, anyways, uh, we couldn't have any episodes, even the most tiresome 70s referential clip show episodes, without the love and support of you, our beloved patrons, patrons, all of you, Patreon backers, as well as you listeners, too, because yeah. even if you don't express your love in a fiscal fashion and... You know, nothing wrong with that. It's the 21st century, everybody. But even if you don't, we still love you. But we do love the people who Patreon back us just that tiny bit more. Yeah. So if you've wondered which of you are our favorites, well, now you know. You, you are. You, you, the listener, are our favorite. You are our favorite. Uh, so, yes. In keeping with our anniversary policy, we're just thanking everybody as opposed to singling people out. And can you know what else we have as an anniversary policy? Cake. I know we have uh, cake. cake. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of uh, the content of the show, you know, it just might be lightning round. And uh, I guess I'll kick off with our long list of lightning round questions brought to us by our beloved uh, backers. We'll get through as many of them as we can in roughly chronological order as take up an hour. So let's start with Kevin J. Maroney, who asks, I don't remember if I've asked this before, but do you ever get to play as opposed to GM, RPGs anymore? Very, very seldom. Uh, it used to be that I would, I could count on one session a year around Christmas at the Dragon Meat session, and Robin would have to run it. Sometimes Gar would run it, but I didn't have to run it. So that was always my guaranteed one session a year. Nowadays, very little. If we're playing, my group and I, there's a lot of board gamers amongst us, so we usually are cracking out the board games rather than someone else saying, you know what I'd like to do? Some of that role-playing I've heard about on the popular podcasts. That's basically just, you know, GM for life was stamped into my head circa 1980, and uh, the brand don't wash off. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, mine's are similar. Uh, occasionally, if I'm at a small convention where, you know, actually sitting down and playing a game is a credible part of the agenda, I might get to do that. But even back in the day, even in high school, I didn't play much. I was almost always the GM. Lightning round! Patrick Joint asks, what are some good norms for levels of knowledge per point of Knight's Black Agent's vampirology? Robin? <laughs> that, right. So, so we're getting to the issue of do the different points in baseline gumshoe actually literally reflect a deviation in uh, knowledge? Are they simulating something or do they just sort of reflect spotlight time? Because, of course, information, if you have vampirology, you always get the information. What you get in addition to that from the points is other benefits. So that reflects your chance. You know, if you have a three, you are almost certain to, you know, not only have the information you know, but you already know the creaky old custodian at the castle in Romania, and he welcomes you and gives you a coffee. Or, you know, you might spend two points in order to attend the vampire hunter's ball without having to worry that anyone else is going to assassinate you, which is a well-known problem at the vampire hunter's ball. So It is. They don't have a ball without having to bury a few corpses. Yeah, the other thing that I would reiterate is that no matter how obscure the vampire fact is, if it is the core clue, it is a zero-point clue. You don't have to spend to get it. So it can be the most abstruse piece of knowledge about how Burmese vampires feed on rice liquor as well as on blood. And if you need that for the mystery to go, 
then that's just a free clue. It doesn't matter how wild and abstruse. So you can't just say one point is every Hammer film and Dom Calmet and two points is, you know, every Buffy episode. It, it, that's not how it works. Vampirology, as, as Robin says, it expands to fill your spotlight time. There's not like, you know, oh, no, I have postdoc in vampirology, so I have two points. That's just not how it works. Right. And that is a frequently asked question. And because people are used to other games where gradations in the numbers do indicate... <laughs> in, including vampire, oddly enough. <laughs> including vampire. Determine who's better than who in our simulative. But in uh, Gumshoe, it's just what extra goodies you get. How red is your cherry on top of the sundae? Lightning Derek McMullen asks, Adam Scott Glancy referred to himself as a discount can. Is he next in line to work with Time Incorporated? And if yes, has he gone on training missions? Well, I think Scott would be the first to tell you that a training mission is just a regular mission that ends in gunfire. And so far, <laughs> all of Scott's missions have been training missions. I'm <laughs> very pleased to say, you know, often the gunfire is pointed generally downrange. Uh, that's, you know, Scott, say what you want about his uh, impulse control. He's definitely trigger control. He's on it. He, he practices gun safety and time safety. That's one of the reasons that he was picked. Also, because we got the extra big uh, time cycle in, and uh, my legs don't stick all the way down to those pedals. So it was, it was important to bring Scott on. Right. And, and it does have to be said that he is sent on the gunfire requiring missions, because he has many, many fine qualities in, in, in addition to the, you know, coming strapped. But he is obtrusive. Yeah. Everybody knows that. And the other problem is the Walter Sobchak problem in that Walter Sobchak is also a time traveler. And, you know, when they bump into each other, it's sort of a, it's like when two Doctor Who's meet. That's not so great. We, we've talked about the Shadow Ken problem before. Scott just came with a pre-established shadow. You know what? He may be the shadow. We, we actually need to look into this. Michael Kuehl asks, what's a historical time and place that would make a good setting for fantasy, whether Wainscott fantasy or alternate history, preferably one that hasn't been done, Robin? Okay, so if it hasn't been done, that means it's too obscure <laughs> to be a, a good setting. So we want one that has been lightly done, because the whole point of this is to be relatively accessible, right? If you're, if, if nobody knows the fourth century in India, having an alternate version of that is of no use to anybody. Not super relevant, no. But the Napoleonic era, I think, has been, uh, it's certainly been touched on in fantasy and, and so forth, but it's close enough to our time that it's accessible, but also has not been wildly overdone. Uh, basically, I think anything, once you get firearms in there, uh, the fantasy kinds of kind of drops off a bit. So I think that'd be great to do a, a Napoleonic Wars uh, kind of uh, Wayne Scott fantasy behind the scenes uh, game. The Napoleonics are wonderful. I think there's only been one fantasy game that I know of that was explicitly set there. And of course, Naomi Novik's got her ridiculous dragon novels that are set there. I personally am kind of wondering why we haven't seen a fantasy British Raj, speaking of India, because it's, it's tailor made for fantasy. You've got a whole subcontinent's worth of amazing religious and cultural beliefs and magic systems and monsters. You got the hated British to be your bad guys, or if you're the kind of um, uh, radical player, uh, you could play the hated British and use Freemasonry to tamp down the subcontinent against the Russians over the mountains or against, you know, the Indians who reject your ability to control them with Freemason magic. But either way, you know, there's a ton of literature about it. It's uh, There used to be a bunch of movies about it. It's a relatively well-known setting. And again, as I say, perfect villains. 
Lightning Martin Rundqvist asks, Name a piece of rules machinery you publish that you suspect hardly anyone has ever used. Robin. So the first thing is that no matter how clunky a rule that you published and now regret seems to you, there's someone who not only uses it, but loves it and will be unhappy when you take it out. So there's no mm-hmm. such thing as no one has ever used. I think that in Ash and Stars, the idea that there are negative consequences when your crew's reputation goes down too far and you get crummy contracts and you can't, uh, it's harder to afford repairs to the ship. I think that level, uh, I'm not sure uh, the vast majority of players go into that, but it is there for people who want it. And if you want to avoid it, don't be a space weasel. Yeah, don't be a space weasel. That's good advice anyway. I think that some of the mechanics that I put into Vampire 5th Edition maybe are are taking a while to sort of settle in. I hope that people are using the project mechanics. I put in the memoriam mechanics in which you remember something that happened to you when you were a younger vampire and play it out and figure out, oh, I did leave those gold bars in that basement 200 years ago, but now I can go get them. How great is that? I think that that's a super fun and evocative thing, but I feel like it's not really the way that people were used to playing vampire with a lot of flashbacks. Maybe now in uh, our modern era, when flashbacks are part and parcel of so many adventure shows, it's more common. I hope it is, because I think it's a pretty great system. Lightning Round! Frank Matacrosh Redding asks, How does one keep a useful overview of one's sizable physical and digital game setting and adventure libraries? I think that one probably has to have some sort of app, right? I don't know if library thing, because uh, library thing tracks by Isbins, and I feel like a lot of game companies are if you're on their isbins with digital stuff you know <laughs> good old search seems to work for me so far except for the part where i don't remember if i have that particular digital game book from that particular bundle of holding but you know the, the digital is relatively easy to keep track of it's all my physical games uh, piling up in various closets that uh, i feel probably well they i know they could use a good culling but they certainly Many of them have dropped completely off my radar now because I don't have library thing for them. So it's like, do I have that old mage splat book? Probably. <laughs> Can I find it? How bad do I need it? Because I've got the digital one. Right. Yeah. And and my strategy in terms of physical books and games is to uh, not own that many of them. Because yeah, right. I don't have that much space. I live in a uh, an apartment in a house in, in a downtown area. And as far as the digital is concerned, again, yeah, search is your friend. And especially with game stuff, I tend not to hold on to things that I don't immediately need because if suddenly down the road, you know, three years from now, you know, I I get approached to do another mage thing, uh, well, then I'll be able to, you know, get the digital reference material that I, uh, that I require. So yeah, my, my strategy is to, uh, to keep it small. Lightning round! Andrew Miller asks, Ground beef lends itself to all sorts of kitchen applications, but ground chicken is mysterious. What's the best way to use ground chicken in my kitchen adventures? Robin. Right. Well, much like our advice last week to professional DMs, I, I've, <laughs> I've had no experience either with, yeah. with ground chicken. But my guess is I think you want to put it in some sort of a samosa sort of situation, yeah, something with pastry, right. something with phyllo dough. Yeah, you almost... because. The, the sort of the natural thing is to sort of just do an extension and say, well, you use ground beef in tacos. Maybe you could use ground chicken in tacos, but ground chicken would turn to mush 
in tacos unless you're really loading it down. That's why you, you know, you'd get the uh, rotisserie chicken, you pull it to pieces, or you cook up your own chicken and cumin and whatnot. Ground chicken, I think, you're right. I think it has to go into into sort of a samosa-type situation or into anything where you're making a filled pastry. I can imagine making, like, little tiny chicken pies, like chicken pot pies with ground chicken instead of chunked-up chicken. But I'm not sure why I would imagine making them. Because, again, Indian culture has spent 2,500 years making vegetarian food that doesn't taste bad to begin with. So vegetarian samosas are perfectly good. I feel like if you've been gifted ground chicken by a neglectful ant, yeah, that's where you go with it. But I don't know why anyone would buy it on purpose myself. I'm so tired of adventures that start off with people inheriting ground chicken from the mysterious ant. Well, you know, it's a, I, you take the colicthula out of the boy. Lightning round! Gerald Sears asks, In my time machine, I came from the future to the past with a dire warning. Now, how do I prove that I'm really from the future? I feel like depends on who you're trying to prove it to, right? I mean, if you're trying to prove it to your wife, you just give the code word that you used that you set up maybe on in, in you know in your in your honeymoon that if I'm me from a future this is the code word I'll use I mean that's simple right everyone has those if you're trying to prove it to a a skeptical president and you say no seriously this is going to be bad then I assume that the NSA or somebody will take you into a very small room and uh, uh, work you until you prove it and they'll be the ones who decide whether your proof was adequate regardless of what you did cell phones of course you know the little videos can be faked no, I mean no one is going to look at that and say oh yeah that UFO landing that looks real that's not going to happen but imagine the irony Robin if, if, if Jan Blomkamp comes back from the future with a dire warning and everyone's like oh it's a demo reel that's good yeah alright here's uh, 10 million bucks for you uh, go out and shoot me some stuff right so the trick here is not to bring back any fancy technology but just to do your research ahead of time assuming your time machine is finely controlled where you can dictate exactly not just you know what year you show up in uh, but like what hour so you check you know the final score of a ball game or something and then you uh, appear and say i have a list here of who's going to win all the baseball games tonight and uh, that's my proof. Especially if you're telling this to an American president, it is baseball. They're legally obligated yeah, to believe that you're a time That traveler. FDR set that down, I think. Exactly. Uh, in, in WW2. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free. 
with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers. The Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. Lightning Round! Travis Johnson asks, Off the top of your head, what tabletop settings are right for screen adaptation and why? Robin? So the trick with turning games into narrative is to to have compelling characters, which are the center of any film. And often that's uh, what's intentionally left out of any great role-playing setting because you're supposed to be the great characters. So Mm -hmm. uh, there are, you know, all sorts of you know, tie-in novels that you could look to. So I would, which gets me into the ground of, you know, I don't want to specify exactly whose tie-in novels are better than whose else's and who you should go to, but I would look for something where there's a compelling character either in the uh, interstitial fiction or in the tie-in fiction or, you know, something like that. But of course, my games. Yeah, yeah. Any any game by Robin or myself, obviously. I would say that games that have a meta plot may be better movies than games in many ways. And But if the meta plot is strong, I feel like you could do a, a fairly good, for example, Delta Green TV show or, or movie. And, you know, they've, they've got all the sort of famous bad guys and, and weirdos. And then you, ha- you know, that's where you put your, your, your simpleton viewpoint character is they're the new fresh Delta Green meat and they're thrown into the awful backstory of Delta Green. I, I imagine, well, I mean, they literally, Aaron Spelling literally did that with Vampire, uh, made a TV show out of it. Obviously, I feel like the Dracula dossier, well, you know, Dracula, that's, that's got legs. I feel like a whole dossier of Dracula can't help but also uh, make some pretty good uh, TV. Right. And the closer to a conventional procedural, where of course, all, almost all role-playing games are procedural, but that can easily be slotted into that format, like, say, Delta Green would be a, mm-hmm. a great choice. Lightning round! Samuel Noyce asks, How are Hollow Earth and the recent uptick in uh, UAP, brackets, UFO phenomenon, related in the most gaming-related way? Well, the, I mean, the most gaming-related way is that the Hollow Earth is the uh, sort of what I like to call the uh, widening scope, the moment you often get that in a movie. Michael Bay is actually pretty good at it in the Transformers movies where you think you got one kind of problem and then you realize, oh, this is much bigger and older and wilder and weirder than I thought. Widening scope is something that happens in a lot of role-playing games, especially mystery-type ones where you don't know who the conspiracy is, you don't know who the bad guys are, and then you discover, oh, this is bigger, this is more, This oh, this has Cthulhu in it. It wasn't just a series of bizarre murder mysteries down by the docks, you get that moment of scope widening and the moment of scope widening in a UFO investigation game, uh, whether you are jut jawed, uh, Navy guys, or whether you are, you know, bloggers and people up with a YouTube channel, you, when you go out and you investigate the UFOs, the moment of revelation is, Oh, it's the stupidest imaginable explanation for UFOs. They're in the hollow earth. And hopefully your game has already established a sort of a lighthearted supermarket tabloid version of UFOs. You weren't trying for the X-Files because unless you are really good, you are not pulling off the hollow earth as the reveal and maintaining any sort of seriousness or tension. I just don't feel like that can be made to work. Maybe it could, but you know, if, if so, you're a better man than I am. Yeah. If you want to do it serious, the, the thing about the hollow earth, because it is sort of goofy and pulpy 
is to have that be the screen, have a cult that believes in the hollow earth. And then, you know, the real hollow earth is the people you mean along the way. Right? <laughs> right, it's yeah. something, it's, it's something else. And it's, it's either, you know, a, a gateway to the outer dark. And if you meet a person who's got Nazis and dinosaurs inside them along the way, that is bad. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Lightning round. Ed Sizemore asks, if you could only drink one adult beverage for the rest of your life, what would it be, Robin? So the way to cheat is to pick an adult beverage with the widest possible breadth of different taste, right? Because I assume right. we're not, if I say beer or wine, I assume I'm not limiting myself to one, one particular vintage, beer, right? right? Yeah. So I'm just going to, I'm going to minimax this and say beer. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if that is the way we're doing things and I feel like Ed Sizemore is shaking his fist right now and saying, it's not how you're doing things. I would say <laughs> wine in the spirit of Ed's question. If he had asked me that, if, if episode 500 had come like even a month ago, the answer would have been Sheila's martinis, which are amazing. But now that it's summer, the answer is very clearly Pim's cup. Lightning round! Lobberfan asks, what city should we look to for the next Rob Ford? I feel like we have, you know, a plenitude of offerings, but America's clownish mayors right now are sort of, you know, I think jockeying for position in, in a lot of ways. They got a mayor that's running for Los Angeles mayor who's Maybe possible. I haven't really followed this, but this guy Caruso seems like he could be fun. I mean, Eric Adams, his his show is so new, we don't know if it's a comedy or a, a procedural yet. Actually, in New York, it, it's Eric Adams. No, <laughs> hands down, yeah. the vivid character, wacko, ideology crossing mayor of the moment is clearly Eric Adams. Yeah. anyone else is going to have to run pretty fast to uh, to surpass him. I mean, the fact that. To be weirder than him, his opponent had to have, like, 19 cats. I mean, that's good. And I love a mayor of New York who doesn't live in New York because it's a dump. That's yes. that's amazing to me. That's so great. <laughs> he lives in an undisclosed location. In New Jersey. Possibly New Jersey. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Good for you, Eric Adams. Long may you wave at the <laughs> simmering morass that is your city. Yeah. He has a new kooky thing every every week on the reg. Anybody yeah. else is going to have to. And, and also, he's got such a good supporting cast of weirdos. Yeah. I mean, that's what, uh, you know, Rob Ford was really like a one-man show. In a way. Well, he, he was in Congress because yeah. he was a weirdo from Toronto. Yeah, which is uh, just funny. A weirdo from New York is just, oh, a New York mayor. Yeah, but now there's more weirdos. It's sort of, you know, you're, is that the un unsinkable Kimmy Schmidt uh, sh sort of a vibe? That's that's what he's got. He's he's the third season that that show never got. Lightning round! Sam Rutzik asks, what Greek philosopher would be best in the NBA? And we don't mean Knights Black Agents. We mean National Basketball Association. And what past or present NBA player, that's how we could tell, would be most interesting at one of Socrates' symposia? Uh, Robin, do you have uh, thoughts on Greek philosophers and American basketball? Well, I'm going to fake it. Aristotle, obviously, is your Greek philosopher because he's uh, the great analyst who looks at structures and see how things fit and is all about empiricism. So he would be really good at analyzing the different plays and uh so he's like a manager yeah yeah so so he would, he'd be you know one of those great thinking players he would be the the gretzky of ancient greek basketball right which nba player would be interesting at uh socrates symposiums there's certainly lots of colorful characters but uh kareem abdul jabbar is one heck of a writer one heck yeah. of a, an editorialist 
And so uh, he's the one I, who I would look to to hold his own among all the togas. Yeah. I feel like if we're looking for pure athleticism, Plato is hard to beat. He wrestled in the Isthmian Games. He was like basically, you know, next level from Olympian athlete. So, you know, athleticism is the core thing. You can teach basketball, but you can't teach willingness to grapple with sweaty men. And I think Plato proved he was willing. So Plato, I feel like he's short. He's like five, seven, but a short, aggressive athlete can still do well in today's NBA. I'd like to see him out there, you know, maybe backing up a a more aggressive front line. I feel like that's a strong pick in terms of, I would just love to see Michael Jordan. uh, And this is of course the very vanilla answer at Socrates Symposium, because he is Vertu. He is excellence. He is the good. And Socrates is like, you you know, like Mike, be like Mike, (laughs) do that. Yes. You Socrates question. Should you just do it? Should you just do it? Mike's like, yes, do it. And they're like, yeah, okay. Be like Mike. Symposium solved. Problem problem over. It'd be amazing. And I mean, he legitimately does have that, you know, very considered philosophy of action that I feel like, you know, it, it, it helps with a little of the more airy, uh, speculative nature of Socrates. Uh, Socrates himself, a fighting man, fought at Delium. He knows a little something about, you know, bringing it all to the court. And I feel like he and MJ might get along. Sean says, self-promote. What is the next piece of creative work we will be seeing from our esteemed hosts? I don't know what the next piece is from me, but I will tell you that Blood Sigils, the book about the blood magic scene in Vampire 5th Edition in the World of Darkness, will be coming out at a time, and it is the thing that I have most recently, I think, completed. Um, you never can tell until it comes back from uh, the licensor, but... I'm, I'm very happy with it. Uh, we had some great writers. We had Greg Stolze. We had uh, Jose G. Garcia. We had Emily Cambius. They did a wonderful job. I'm, I'm very happy with it. And I love the idea of the sort of, you know, if you're vampires, there's still the skeevy weirdos that you don't like. That's who the <laughs> blood magicians yes, are. Even, even vampires need somebody to look down on. Not even they're just askance at. It's like, you know, you know, you go down to the the, the sort of the street market and you think, well, if I wanted black tar heroin, I bet I could buy it here. But do I even want to be in a place that will sell me that? That's what vampires think when they go to the the, the magic scene. And I I, I, I love that. And, and we got to sneak all kind of monsters in. It was, it was great fun. Robin? The next things uh, from me that are in post-production, ergo, uh, therefore, going to come out, are the uh, Pavis and Big Rubble books from chaosium which are uh the new updated versions of those uh, classic i was i was at the table where you were commissioned to do those <laughs> oh yeah yeah you were you were there for the pitch on that uh-huh. and that was a while ago so that tells you how long it takes to get things through the well, pipeline it's and also, a very big rubble in fairness <laughs> these are both gigantically large uh, books and unlike previous version it was written they were written by one person yeah uh, me Robin. Um, also in post-production is the second installment of the uh six ages Glorantha set mobile game. If you haven't played Six Ages already, you can uh, go and play the first chapter, which is uh, very exciting. But it's been a great fun uh, process of uh, fusing narrative with uh, resource management. And uh, this is the one where uh, the chaos age is coming, where the end of the world is on its way and you're trying to eke your way to survive to the end of the world and possibly beyond it. And so it introduces some uh, fun new dynamics, including the characters that you interact with uh, in the uh, screens where you're uh, given problems to deal with. There's 
more characterization and more uh, interaction between them, uh, particularly the king of your tribe is a big important deal. And uh, so that gave me a chance to play with sort of uh, Shakespearean royal narratives in this very interesting, fun format. Lightning Round! Dan O'Hanlon asks, Why do the Nordic alien and the gray alien drink kombucha? Robin? So the Nordic alien, of course, is a bit of a hippie. Yeah. He's into macrobiotics. He's into... World peace. World peace. He's uh, into cleanses, even though there's no scientific basis for them. Nordic aliens, they can fly aircraft, nutrition, not their strong point. And the gray alien is agreeable. Normally, you know, they, they kind of stick to themselves, but the Nordic alien and this gray alien, they became pals. And uh, the, the gray alien doesn't really like kombucha per se, but he does like drinking kombucha with his friend, the Nordic alien. Also, if uh, you are a gray alien with a primitive, mostly evolved away digestive tract, gut biome health is even more important than it is for most of us. And as we all know, the gray aliens are very interested in colons. So, <laughs> lightning round! Trung Boy asks, was Thacko really all that bad? I don't think so. I mean, it was counterintuitive and weird, but keep in mind, this was 1977. D&D was counterintuitive and weird. I think that it's better the other way, but... You know, as tables to memorize, it was not a particularly onerous table to memorize. And the idea of, you know, you, you, your vulnerability being the number sort of fits with how dice work, I think. It's just, I didn't find it that bad. It's, I mean, no one should necessarily go back to it because, you know, I, I think people do more tend to count up than down. That's just, you know, psychology. But I didn't hate it, Robin. Right. Somehow Thacko got worse when they called it Thacko. Yeah, once it had a name. Instead of just having you figure it out. But it's not that Thacko was bad. It's that higher numbers being better armor is good. Yeah. Lightning round! Alan Wilkins asks, miniature giant space hamsters threat or menace? I think, Robin, that's just space hamsters at this point. Or am I wrong? Threat. Menace. Lightning round! Laurel Halbani asks, what is your favorite new recipe or food preparation you would recommend to Cardus listeners? I have very recently gotten interested in Georgian bean stew, which is called Lobio. And there's uh, all kinds of different ways to make it. The Georgians now make it with red kidney beans, which is handy because I'm not going to be getting Georgian beans anytime soon. And that's Georgian as in Eastern Europe. Georgian as in the Caucasian Republic, not as in the multiracial American state. Uh, basically it's, it's red beans. It's a Georgian spice mix called Humeli Suneli, which is good fun to say, and even more fun to reverse engineer. It usually has nuts in it. The Georgians like to make it with walnuts. I hate walnuts, so I make it with almonds, uh, which works just about as well. And you basically make this bean stew. You can add or not add uh, meat to the process, but I think it's best just as itself. And then you eat it with really dark rye bread and it, that combination of flavors is super good. If you, you know, hunt down my, my Twitter, you'll find my recipe for it that adds Chicago Jardinera to it for an even better and more delicious Lobio. So my food experience during the uh, pandemic period has not been one of uh, going out and buying new ingredients and experimenting with them. It's been more about survival. So the closest I come is a weird food trick, which is that I've gotten into flavored bitters in a big way and using those not just in cocktails but also as a flavor ingredient either in a diet coke sorry i should say diet cola store brand diet cola which on its own is terrible yeah 
It is. <laughs> it's actively terrible. Put in like five dashes of coffee pecan bitters or rhubarb bitters, and it, it's suddenly great. And also, uh, just as likely, I will do a club soda with either almond syrup or hazelnut syrup, and also, again, a compatible uh, bitter. Nice. The Best of Ask Fageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Lightning Round! Jim McCarthy asks, it's 50 years in the future. What was the definitive moment that turned tabletop role-playing games on their head? Robin? It's probably some sort of seamless interface that allows people to play mechanically complicated trad games and takes away all of the bookkeeping of that while allowing you to retain uh, all of the creativity and, and spontaneity and, and uh, you know, the person who cracks that will will radically change the form. Yeah, I thought it was Neverwinter Nights way back when it came, because that, that was as close as we'd gotten to a plug-and-play uh, dungeon that almost any idiot could could make. And I thought, well, that's that's literally, the, that's what we need. And that was, I think, 2003 or something. That hasn't happened yet. But when the plug-and-play dungeon that any idiot can make is a thing, and by any idiot I mean me, then that will be the other half of it. Robin's got the, the play half. I'm talking the DMing half. Both, I think, are necessary to fully turn tabletop games onto their head. Lightning round! Lee Williams asked, If my hated British forebears hadn't gone up to all the shady stuff back in the day, whose empire would have taken our place? Well, it would have been probably a, a congeries of empires, but most of it would be French. The jewel in the crown, if you will, of the British Empire was, of course, India. They fought a lengthy and ridiculously unfair competition with the French. For about 80 years over who got to, whose India company got to run India, uh, the French lost because they were being distracted by trying to conquer the continent of Europe and other stuff, and by helping us get our independence. Thanks, France. So I feel like absent the British, it would have been the French. They were the other large Western European national power. They were the next most advanced economy without the British involved at all in some sort of weird alternate where uh, British unity completely collapses in, say, the you know, War of the Roses or something, the French probably roll over the Spanish Netherlands and wind up with that industrial base added to their own not inconsiderable uh, potential in Lyon and other uh, spots in southern France. So 
I feel like you probably would have seen a globe-girdling French empire that I have to believe would have come apart at the seams at least two or three times, given that France itself has done the same thing. Robin? So that, I think, is absolutely the uh, most logical extrapolation. But in terms of if I had to create a setting where the British Empire had been replaced by something else, and I could pick any divergence point in history that I wanted to to justify it and then go backwards to make that happen. I think I would go with the Dutch just because They're so today cool. we think of that as extremely peculiar, that it's not as uh, as accessible or obvious. And, and also, people would not do s- stupid fake Dutch accents at the table because <laughs> they don't know how, right. whereas everybody would be doing Cluzo in your game version of this. As well they should. Lightning round! Monster Talk asks, my favorite gaming typo is on a map in Zombie Town, USA that labels a nearby peak as Mr. Lookout. What's your favorite gaming typo, Robin? Well, I have to say that since the Pelgrane monthly blog extravaganza and my own column in it are called C Page XX, I have to admit that it is that. It makes me a bad person. But famously, there's a C page XX or possibly several in first edition mage. And it's not the first or last time that has happened because it's the easiest mistake in the book to make. And therefore, because who whose product among us is without typos? Uh, Sadly, not mine. So uh, but that one seems like the. The patron saint, the the egregore of typos. Yeah, there was a there was a page in I think it was the first edition Malkavian book because this error goes all the way back to the beginnings of White Wolf, the, the first edition Malkavian splat book that was just a giant page and it was labeled page XX and it was like this is the page this is the page we meant you to see which was a, a way of hanging a lantern on it I thought it was uh, pretty funny I was a big fan uh, in terms of my favorite typos there was. There's a lot of them that, that get caught that are funny. Uh, Mike Seliker had a good story about, um, what was it? It was like mage got swapped out and then the word image wound up being eye wizard instead of <laughs> I mage. Oh, right. Yes. There's a search and replace. <laughs> yeah. The search and replace error. Those always sound like fun if they happen to someone else. But, you know, the, the, the trouble is that page accesses aside, typos that show up in a game are seldom fun, even if you didn't write the game in question because it just delays the amount of time you, you have to spend looking it up. So right. the, the best mistake is one, as you point out, that gets caught ahead of time. So I'll right. say the best thing a proofreader ever caught in one of my works and saved me massive embarrassment was I, in a uh, one of the Warhammer fantasy novels I wrote, described a one-handed man clipping his nails. Mm. In Warhammer, I could see it happen, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you would need a paragraph to... Right. A visual description. It's just a character type. Roll like 79 on the character generation table. You're the one-handed man's nail clipper. That's your job. Yeah. Lightning round! Marvel superheroes phase rip by TSR. A system worth resurrection? Question mark, says Stephen Milkowski. Yes, it is. Uh, it's a terrific system. It's intuitive. In a, uh, it, we talked about memorizing tables up under the Thacko era. Even easier table to memorize, great fun to play, managed to balance the Ant-Man and the Hulk are together, then a bad thing happens. I, I thought Phase Rip, it, it, you know, and then we love Matt Forbeck, and I have not played the new Marvel game that he did, and I'm sure it's wonderful, but if I'm thinking Marvel games, I still love, I still love Jeff Grubb's uh, Phase Rip. That was such a good design, so elegant. And, you know, talk about your acronyms. What's better than phase rip, Robin? It it was very innovative at the time. It was exciting. And it was tied 
to a license that you know the company is eventually going to lose. And so it's always a great source of pain for me. I, I think the argument should be that when you're hired to do a licensed product, don't do anything cool and innovative because it's just going to get lost. When, it's just going to break your heart. When that moves on to the next thing. So I'm not saying that anyone has ever colored in the lines or even phoned it in, but if you're going to do that, just do you know a basic new version of a a rule set that's kind of the average of all other rule sets because uh, you'll just make people sad when your innovative thing has to go away. But on the other hand, I know that Jeff Grubb is happy when people praise Phase Rip as well he should be. As well he should be. Lightning, Lightning round. round! John Scheib asks, what's the single most important thing to add when papering over the seams when you add something to the starting point of Earth? Something to make it less jarring when the non-Earth part is added in. Robin. Well, I think the the thing is is the characters, right? That they are the the weirdos on the uh, edge of the world who uh, go and interact with that with the weirdness when it starts popping up. So that what you're looking for is a sort of a justification to explain why they engage in their core activity and why they will engage in their core activity if the Wayne Scott nature of the world hasn't made itself a, apparent before. So you know whether it's the classic you know, uh, ancient secret organization that keeps an eye on the thing that's going to crawl out from the wainscoting or uh, whether it's some uh, new thing that the uh, characters themselves bring into being, that the, the core activity is your, you know, at the risk of saying a thing I always say, that's where you want to start. And I, I think maybe the first time ever in a lightning round, I'm going to premise reject a little bit because you don't have to. We've, we've played endless games of Start With Earth. No one says, well, I'd want to play vampire, but I can't believe in vampires. No, that's the reason you're playing. So the thing is, the single most important thing to add is something cool enough to be worth playing a game about in the first place. Whether that be vampires, the Cthulhu mythos, flying saucers, the Nazis were actually elves, and that explains so much about them. You know, whatever it is, make it so cool that people are so eager to play the game they will help you paper over the disjoints. They will come up with the reason. They'll say, well, I'm sure there's a reason that no one found out about vampires until today, but, you know, I'm vampires. I'm I'm for it. Whatever dumb reason you come up with in play is going to work for me because I so want to get in there and kill slash be vampires. And that's, um, you know, that that's the whole point of any creative thing is to sell the story idea, sell the premise so hard that people join you willingly on the path. And that's true of Every kind of creative act, especially, I think, uh, role-playing. Lightning round! Friedrich Brunison asks, Why hasn't the time machine been used to fix 80s fashion? Or was it? Oh my god, how bad was it before Time Incorporated fixed it? I would like to take exception to Friedrich Bjarnason's questioning the literal high point of all Western civilization, namely the 80s. There's only so much you can do before natural fabrics really take over. This is the last great gasp of man dominating the universe, and we hadn't given up. I mean, you look at 90s fashion, that's the fashion of a culture that says, all right, whatever, end it all. We're sad. 80s fashion is, is about exuberance and fun and, and zip. That's why it was so great. You know, the time machine, when I go back to the 80s, uh, and I do on very legitimate business a lot, it's to stop things from ruining the 80s, like, you know, the Soviets or, uh, or you know, whatever. The 80s are, are I mean, it's like the, the Italian Renaissance. It's a, it's a right. beautiful, shining example of why we have time machines is so that we get to see that. And, and also, I think probably that you bring back 
all sorts of photos of actual people in their daily lives yeah. in the eighties who do not look like heightened characters in music videos or in comedies that are making fun of the fashions of the day because what people were actually wearing uh, was not nearly as as odd as we think about it and you know even more so than like everybody thinks the 60s was everybody was hippie gear and not everybody had shoulder pads in the 80s either in fact men's suits were were tailored better in the 80s than i think they were in any other decade since maybe the 30s i don't know Hard to say, but right. uh, the there, 80s there were, were there were pleats on pants though, so it wasn't yeah. well, it wasn't across. It's the board not a utopia, Robin. It's it's a living, vibrant, messy, real world. Exactly. Lightning, Lightning round. round. Derek Heimforth asks, which rock album describes a world that would make an entertaining RPG setting or campaign? Robin Devo. Are we not men? <laughs> are we not men? I would say, uh, you know, I don't know how well the albums describe anything, but. I would I would game in any Yes album cover. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> Lightning, Lightning round. round! Wayne Rossi asks, what system would you use for a Robin Hood RPG, and how would you structure its adventures? Do you let someone play Robin, or do you work around that? You know, GURPS Robin Hood, if you like GURPS, and who doesn't, it's pretty great. <laughs> I think that, you know, setting it in a uh maybe a world where robin is a little more sacred king and a little less batman might be a way to bring balance to the force but on the other hand you know i don't see a problem we've talked previously about how to you know establish spotlight time uh, borrow stuff from buffy the vampire slayer maybe robin can do stuff but unless he gets to drink with uh alan adale and friar tuck he's not the same jolly robin that we all love and so that's part of the game as well that emotional come down from the fun forest piracy right I suppose you could do the revisionist version where you don't know which of the characters will become the legendary figure uh, who might or might not then be referred to as, as Robin Hood. So I suppose it depends on whether you want to do kind of a gritty historical take that recognizes that these stories will later become legend or whether you want to do the straight up Michael Curtiz, Errol Flynn, Robin Hood, in which case, you know, that is an adventuring party. And uh, Robin Hood is pretty good at splitting arrows and so forth, but he doesn't you know, dominate the whole party, you know, other than, you know, being Errol Flynn. Exactly. Lightning round! Eric, speaker in digressions, asks, one rule for the veil-out is to discredit the truth by associating it with crazy conspiracy theorists. Does that still work in 2022 now that crazy conspiracy theorists have gone mainstream? Well, some have gone mainstream, others have been banished from Twitter never to darken our days again. <laughs> I, I feel like... Alex Jones is well known, but I feel like describing him as mainstream is an insult both to Alex Jones and the mainstream, quite frankly. So I, I would say there's always something crazier. You may think, well, nothing's going to get crazier than that, said the, the Methodist lady sipping her iced tea. Oh, things got crazier than that, ma'am. Things definitely got crazier than that. Yeah, I, I think absolutely the increased visibility of conspiracy theorists and the fact that people are, are onto them. And know that many of them are grifters and are, you know, <laughs> selling, you know, selling trying to come up with new content to sell their supplements uh, just makes it all the easier. It's like, you know, if if one of these people says that the weird creatures in the forest really existed and they're going to produce the footage, that's sort of self-discrediting. So the good news is it's easier to veil out. The hard news is that more things are crawling through the veil now that collective reality is uh, melting away. Lightning round! Ian Carlson says, The characters in your game have just returned victorious from solving some mystery, and you were describing their celebratory in-game meal. What is the game, 
And what is the meal? I mean, my, I, I guess the answer is my current game. I have two current games, both set in the mid-century, 1955 set Supers game of Sentinels, of Sentinel Comics, and a 1968 set Fall of Delta Green game. I, quite frankly, if I describe the Fall of Delta Green game, my players will cater it, which is both temptation and too much power for one man to have. So I'll describe the 1955 Supers game. I feel like if they return, their base is on Guam, so the meal is probably like a big, is, is probably a big, like, uh, Indonesian Rishtafel with some, you know, tiki beverages, you know, and, and a lot of fresh fish because one of the characters is from Lemuria. So I, I feel like that's sort of the, the vibe we would go for. Maybe we'd go around the table and ask everyone what their favorite, uh, course is. And of course, Craig plays a man made out of liquid mercury who doesn't eat. And so he would say, don't eat. And that would be good fun. We'd all enjoy that joke. And, uh, we have an alien. So he would say, oh, what I love most is thing that you did not think was the meal. These delicious napkins. And everyone's like, oh, crab, you alien, you weirdo. And, and I, I feel like, in a game, meals are about not so much describing an ideal perfect meal as they are describing the characters and giving you another facet of the character's humanity or, in the case of uh, others, alienity and robotness. And so that, I think, is really the point, not naming some meal that you think would be wonderful to eat or even to think about eating, although I would actually love to eat a Riechstoffel if someone made it. Well, f- food is a great way to evoke setting in a way that uh, we often neglect. So for the purpose of this question, I'll pretend that I'm currently running the game that I was running when uh, the pandemic uh, and life intervened. And that would be Canadian Shield. I think we wrapped up with the characters having stopped Dracula from uh, preventing uh, Lester Pearson from uh, solving the Suez crisis. And so uh, Canadian agents in the uh, late 50s uh, when they go out to celebrate, it's a steakhouse. That's the only option. That's all yeah, there is. Right. Yep, that's that's what you have. In, enjoy your, your iceberg lettuce uh, salad. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. Lightning round! Alden Strock asks, If for some reason you could no longer live in your current city, pause for gasps, where would you most prefer to live, Robin? Well, it would have to... I, yeah. I yeah. guess I'd want to stay in Canada. It has to be Vancouver. I, I don't understand how anyone lives in London. I don't understand the economics yeah. of living in London. So I guess if we're making up all sorts of crazy pants unicorn things i have the money to live in london somehow in uh-huh. this scenario so i guess half realistically vancouver and fantastically london yeah I, I think we may have the same fantastic answer and that quite frankly that would be the best is if robin and i both lived in london 
How great would that be? But I would say, again, I would stay in America for obvious reasons. Austin, Texas was great when I first visited it. It is sort of crowded with people who also visited in 1999 and thought, this is great. So I don't know if it's still great. It's it's great fun, but it is the surface of the sun for like three months out of the year, which I'm not a fan of. I actually kind of dig Philadelphia's vibe. It's got a very similar, I mean, the sports fans are just monstrous, horrible humans, but so are Cubs fans, you know, a different kind of way. So I think I could, I think I could vibe with Philadelphia if it came down to it, if I was exiled from the greatest city in the world. And of course, my, my retirement plan, pause for hollow laughter, is just to go back to my own beloved hometown of Oklahoma City, which has slowly, since I left it in 1988, been building up the infrastructure to actually be kind of a pleasant place as long as I don't want to do anything, you know, particularly up to the minute. And by the time I'm moving out of Chicago, I probably won't. Lightning, Lightning round! Hyperlexic says we hear a lot about what goes into Ken's bookshelf, but that must be at capacity. How does he decide what to take out of the bookshelf? Ken, do you deaccession? I, I don't understand the question, Robin. Lightning round! Roger Edge asks, Owlbears, cute, cuddly, misunderstood creatures that don't mean to kill people, they're just misunderstood, or horrible abominations against nature that need to be put on the goddamn ground before these corrupted hell beasts kill again. Robin! Well, it's role-playing. There's got to be factions, right? Yep. There's the good owlbears and, and the bad owlbears, and they have a long complicated backstory that you as the player characters can navigate is, ah, no, the owlbears are attacking! Ah, yeah, they were all hell beasts, it was all a trick! Lightning round! Ray Slikinski asks, Company X writes you a blank check to create your dream RPG product with no strings attached. What project would you start on? Maybe it's so niche you'd never get a green lit otherwise, and here is your chance. Well, I mean, if it's a really blank check, I guess this is how Robin and I moved to London. (laughs) Right, yes. It's all just a scam, yeah. folks. Our London RPG. When we finish the RPG, we have to move back. This is, this is, if you're Company X, do not let Ray Slikinski write your contracts. That's just a word of advice to you. Or do. But yeah, I mean, if I were, you know, literally no strings attached, I think something that's a deep dive into the urban geography and fantasy of a specific city, in my case, Chicago, I've actually often thought about trying to you know, do that is something basically just Chicago, the setting book. And then, oh, you just bring your game in. Chicago can, you know, can play with you. But for a full on RPG, you'd probably want to have some sort of, you know, associated urban explorer or, or, or type activity that you do that lets you uncover truth upon truth upon truth upon truth, sort of planetary, the comic book, the great comic book planetary, only for one city and the levels of mystery and wonder that it conceals. London would be another wonderful case, and you could justify it on the cover by saying, oh, this is the Arthur Mackin role-playing game. Nod. And then people discover, you're just making us wander around London and have excitement. This is China Mieville's Kraken, the role-playing game, isn't it? It's like, well, we didn't pay China Mieville, so no. Robin? Right. Well, I'm sure beloved uh, member of my gaming group, Ray, will forgive me for not premise rejecting, but I, I used to have better answers for this, except I've been pretty good over the yeah. years at getting incredibly abstruse things uh, greenlit, some of them very, very successfully. So it's like, what's the number one licensor property I would like to do? Oh, dying Earth. I did that years ago. Mm-hmm. So I've had quite good success doing uh, things that even I didn't think would sell. And I'm, you know, I guess the closest I can come is we sort of have a joking running gag on this show that we'll do like a 19th century American tall tale superheroes. But and I'm not sure we actually either of us want to do that. You know, I guess if the Bill Gates 
Role Playing Game Foundation really wants it, we'll do it. Yeah. I, I feel like Giants in the Earth could be a great game if we took it seriously and did it. Right. And I think it would have a lot of great vibes and fun, but I'm sure that, you know, <laughs> you, you know that giant groundswell of people into Robert W. Chambers and reality, uh, sliding. Well, none of them want this game. So good fun, but you know, Bill Gates, give us a call, right? Lightning, Lightning round. round. Tim Vert asks, what person, living or dead, would you love to have at your gaming table? Robin? Okay, so first of all, when given variants of this question, I do not truck with the dead, because yeah. it introduces too many questions, right? It's creepy because, necromancy. Yeah. Does the person become a regular member of your gaming group, therefore it's a backdoor way of resurrecting someone? You know, In which if, case, if the I, answer is Nigel Fidley. Right. If, if I have three and a half hours to spend with my mom again, am I going to make her fight a carrion crawler? No. No. So when we come well, to living people, also, if I have a single gaming session, I do not want to spend you know, most of it explaining what role-playing is. So I'm going to draw from the list of well-known existing celebrity role-players. So this may be somewhat mercenary of me, but I would try uh, either to hook uh, Deborah Ann Wall on Gumshoe mm-hmm. or play Drama System for Patton Oswalt. And you can bring other friends in this game group. Right, yeah, yeah. Deborah Ann Wall is a strong answer, quite frankly, for so many good reasons. Yeah, getting her into gumshoe would, would pay dividends all the way down the line. I think John Favreau, he has a good table energy, and he's also a gamer, and I feel like you wouldn't have to explain a lot to him. He'd sit down, we're saying, it's 1968, we're fighting Cthulhu, go, and he'd jump right into it. I think he'd have a great time. I think and John Favreau would dinner, be fun. too, that'd be great. If you're nice, yeah. <laughs> Lightning, Lightning round! round. Elias Helfer asks, if Ken were to take his time machine and go back to when you were just starting the show, what is one thing you'd like to tell your former selves to give them a better podcasting experience? Well, I mean, virtually every aspect of this podcasting experience, at least from my perspective, has been a cakewalk. I love it. But I would say get a Patreon earlier. It took uh, James D'Amato very, very seriously looking me in the eye and saying, Stop leaving money on the table, you simpleton. He said it nicer than that, but I knew what he meant. <laughs> you could tell from the look in his eye. I could tell exactly from the look in his eye. He has very expressive eyes. I could look in them all day. Anyway, where was I? All right. I would say start our Patreon early. You know, build out the way for our beloved Patreons to love us back a little more and a little, maybe even a little more ro- robustly. Uh, look into, you know, Twitch or YouTube or some things. I don't say that we need to do that now, mostly because it would be hard. But also, back when we were starting... We didn't know Darcy Ross. I could have gone and found her and said, hey, I'm a stranger to you, but I'm from the future. Here's the code word that we're, oh, we established that in 2016. Sorry. But come and expand our uh, podcast into a multimedia sensation. That would have been fun. Yeah. But, uh, you already did the main one. Start the Patreon earlier. The other ones, which if you hear the very early episodes, it takes us a while to get the sound right. So it'd be buy good microphones right away mm-hmm. and Robin, take them out of the room with the big glass windows. Yeah. So if be, Rob Borges goes back in time, that's what he's telling me. Just <laughs> all the things Rob Borges told us over the course of eight episodes, time Ron Borges would tell us right away. Right. Lightning round. Jacob Borsma asks, what will it take to see Ken and Robin live again? Well, everyone cross fingers, but it will take a ticket to Gen Con to see Ken and Robin live again. Am I correct, Robin? Uh, I bought my ticket. So uh, the way I'm putting it is I'm scheduled to be there. So there's a new variant every hundred days and there might be some other, you know, things, life stuff. Uh, But I I really hope and want to be there and I hope it's good. The other test will be if, if people go to Origins and suddenly there's a big clump of people who suddenly have to figure out how to quarantine in Columbus for a week because they've got you know, they're vaccinated, everything, and they're fine, but they still, they're stuck in Columbus for a week. That's also not good. So cross fingers for 
other big gaming events not being transmission events. Lightning round! Jake B. asks, what was the fifth redacted setting for the Yellow King role-playing game? Robin? That, I guess, would have to be like Arthurian Brittany, right? That's the Mm -hmm. obvious Chambers thing that we didn't have. It's not in there because I didn't write any uh, short stories in the New Tales of the Yellow Sign short story collection set in that era, but it's... uh, Sort of the, the, would have been the obvious other choice if I'd made up the settings from scratch rather than using my short story collection as a basis for that. Would have been kind of a timeless Brittany. So maybe it's Arthurian times with Gradlon and, uh, Dahut in Yeast. And maybe it's all the way up to the 15th century where the Demoiselle Dees is pining away in her castle because her boyfriend was bitten by a viper and fell through a time gate. Yes, reality shifting allows you to mush a lot of stuff together. Right. Lightning round! Fred Kish asks, what is the Ford political machine up to these days? Robin? So as we record this, we're two days away from a provincial election where I will go and vote against Doug Ford. Uh, By the time you hear this, he will have won (laughs) re-election. What happened is he was hugely underwater in the polls before COVID started because he sort of pulled a bait and switch and ran. The the standard Ford shtick is to say, there's a ton of gravy in, in government. We can just end the gravy train and cut out all this extra spending. But then when you get into power and reveal what you want to cut, it's like, you know, libraries and hospitals and the healthcare system and the uh, programs for uh, autistic youth and so forth. And then everybody goes, wait, you said there was gravy. Those are essential government those services. Are, those are meat and vegetables. How yeah. dare you? And so he, you know, ran center right, started to govern, not hard right by American standards, but further from the, the guardrail than you can get away with in Ontario. His popularity plummeted and then COVID came along. And although his response to it left a lot to be desired, in my opinion. It left the same amount to be desired as uh, the premiers and governors of other similar-sized states and provinces. And although a lot of uh, fiddling went along uh, behind the scenes, he had a very center-right message. So he didn't, you know, truck with any of the COVID denialism or ivermectin nonsense or anything like that. And it allowed him to move his image back to the center-right so that he can win election and then go back to governing from the skeevy right. Lightning round! Philip Masters asks, which pre-20th century great artist would you like to have illustrate an RPG you wrote? I feel like, you know, you're sort of spoiled for choice once you start picking great artists. You know, who wouldn't want Titian to illustrate their RPG? But, you know, come on. How many RPGs are you going to get out of The Temptation of St. Anthony? I, I just art-directed an RPG that Steve Dempsey wrote that's illustrated by William Blake, which would have been my answer until I just did it. But I think it, it'd have to be a story game, and it'd have to be one of those with lots of safety tools in it, but I feel like an Aubrey Beardsley illustrated RPG would begin to get into that job of RPG illustrations, which is to sell you on the mood and the tone of what the game is almost as much as the rules and the pros do. And I feel like You've, you've got to have an artist with a very strong vibe to do that. And right now, my answer is Aubrey Beardsley, though. Ask me tomorrow, and it it, it could be anybody. Robin? Uh, I was going to say Aubrey Beardsley if it was uh, black and white printing, and Francisca Goya <laughs> if it's in color. There you go. Goya, your, your horror game set in 19th century Spain. Right. Uh, Goya's the man. Exactly. Lightning round! Nikolai asks, anything interesting happening in Chicago or Toronto municipal politics? Scandinavian newspapers are eerily quiet on those subjects. Robin? So Toronto is doing uh, nothing interesting in politics, which is exactly what Mayor John Tory 
aptly named John Tory was elected to be Mayor is, Steve Boring, my man in Toronto, is uninteresting, and uh, you know it's still a city for homeowners and not renters, for drivers and not transit users. But uh, he's keeping it as boring as he possibly can in order to uh, win another term. Lori Lightfoot continues to delight and amaze. She goes from half cock to differently half cock constantly. She is she never pulls the trigger, but. She never puts the gun down either. It's always a joy. Right now, we have a curfew that was uh, put down at the touristy parts of the Michigan Mile because there was a great deal of shooting. And, of course, the answer is not, I don't know, you know, empower the police to go after these gangs. The answer is just have a curfew. Everything will be fine. It's sort of the living embodiment of the nothing to see here meme. Everybody, not just me, not just grumpy Republicans, we could have Rich Ranallo on to do a killer 38 minutes on this topic, and I wish we would, but uh, she is just delight from delight. It's nothing specifically in terms of political scheming and machinations because she basically has no power base. The machine, I don't think, has enfolded her to its sweaty bosom. The machine is just waiting for her to implode again so that they can... And she's a, a cross-spectrum disappointment, right? The progressives are just as unhappy with her. Yeah, I, I, you're, you're, you're very progressive. People are mad that she's trying to, and I say trying, trying to govern from the center. Of course, Republicans are mad because she's still, you know, soft-pedaling all the, uh, you know, systemic corruption and, and, and graft and crime problems that are undermining the city in the first place. She's making nobody happy, but she's doing it in an increasingly panicked and entertaining way. So, I mean, if you're, if you're a fan of bizarre comedy, and I guess I should have plumped her in the, in that previous episode, but I think Lori is like, you know, you cast her as the central character in the, in the mayor show and people are like, no, she's more the wacky friend mayor. <laughs> she shows up whenever Eric Adams is having too boring a life and, and she's the Kramer of mayors. I don't right. feel like. Even the, the, the Rob Ford of mayors. Well, if this episode had a regular episode title, the Kramer of mayors would be it. But instead, the title is Lightning Round. Michael Manaval asks, my Gen Con crew is getting into Indianapolis a day early. What should we check out during our time in Indy before the convention? Robin and I, uh, I, mean, I would say go back to our food huts on that topic because there is a surprisingly good Peruvian restaurant that is in the middle of nowhere in Indianapolis, if that's not redundant. and. I think James Cambius and I found an amazing Mexican seafood place out on the fringes. There's a terrific barbecue place, if you're into American barbecue, which you certainly should be, called Squealers, that is just knocked down good. It's not a desert, but it takes some effort, and I would say figure out the kind of thing that you like, you know, rule out any of your more exotic cuisines, but... I think there's some depth there. I, th I think that there's some some strong choices. And if you say, we want the absolute best of X available in Indianapolis, and you have to add that last part, you won't walk away disappointed and unhappy, I feel. I would also recommend the Art Museum. Back in the day, it was hard to get to before uh, the days of Uber and harder to get out of, harder to get a cab to show up, but very much well worth it. It's a really solid collection because there were rich people in Indianapolis yeah, there when were. all the European art was available to, to purchase. Yeah, any mid-sized American city will have a art museum that actually punches well above its weight when you look at it. It's just the fact that we had, you know, all the money at the turn of the century and Europe had none. They have the nice Surratt, for example. Lightning round! Neil DeCarteret asks, What would you call a segment in a Q&A show where the hosts answer a series of rapid-fire questions from the audience? Robin? Lightning round! And that's our 500th anniversary show. We'll be back next week with 501. 
and the regular format with all sorts of typical Ken and Robin talking about stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrin Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Auto editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate avian brigandage with our latest design, Stormy Petrels of Crime. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>